0: <laughs> Welcome, everyone, to today's episode of the Diversity Podcast. Today, we are very lucky to be joined by Inori Roy, a Canadian journalist and one of our very good friends. Inori, would you like to introduce yourself?
1: Hi, thank you so much for having me. Uh, my name is Inori Roy. I am a Toronto-based journalist. Um, I work in freelance investigative writing, uh, mostly for magazines and sort of online platforms, um, and this summer I'll be interning at the um, Investigative Journalism Bureau out of the University of Toronto. Um, I went to, I did my master's degree with Saba and Michelle, which is how we know each other. And it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks so much for having me.
2: Thanks so much.
3: Thank you so much for coming. Like we are very pleased to have you. Um, and yes, as Saba said, she is all very different um, from doing our master's together. Um, and yeah. It's really great to have you. And we're gonna, have, we're gonna talk about some like really cool stuff um, this week, um, like differences in journalism and like reporting of race and diversity in Canada compared to the UK and just kind of about annoying experiences and stuff. Um, but obviously uh, every week we have our favorite articles of the week. So we're gonna do our usual thing and give you our favorite articles. Um, Asya, would you like to give us your article first?
2: So I was doing a quick peruse earlier um, to see which articles people had coming out. And the one that really caught my eye, which is the one that I've chosen today, is Out of Thin Air, The Mystery of the Man Who Fell from the Sky, which was a Guardian long read written by Siren Kale um who's quite well known in like the futures world um she runs masterclasses quite regularly with the guardian on features writing and generally i really loved her work like previously when i've read it um the reason why i chose this piece so it's basically following the case of a man who fell out of a passenger plane and into a garden in South London. And it basically talks about stowaways and the history of stowaways on aeroplanes and like what happened with this man when they try to identify who it was. Um, and as well as being really, really interesting, um, it also like had some really good commentary about like migration and the crisis, the migrant crisis and like what we what we should value as human beings and how we should value other human beings um but written really nicely and all tied together in like a really subtle way which I really appreciated um and so that's what I really loved about it and secondly I was kind of like it's really nice when you like read pieces by journalists of colour that aren't necessarily totally linked to race and identity so this like had a subtle link like through the migrant crisis to do with like wider dialogue about that but generally it was just like a really interested, interesting features piece that um, like was really well, wit- well wit- written and engaging so I appreciated that and I would recommend everybody reading it I learned a lot about stowaways on aeroplanes so,
3: that that sounds guess. great. Um, I haven't read it yet, but Surin Kale is an amazing journalist. Um, but also this is not my thing of the week. But if anyone wants to read or like learn more about the migrant situation in the UK, definitely read Hostile Environment by Maya Goodfellow, who is a journalist. Um, because I read that last week, and honestly, I sobbed throughout it, and it's just so tragic and awful. Like this country what we do to like migrants and stuff like that so it's mm. yeah. good read um well Sabah would you like to give us your next your your article of the week
0: I would love to give you my article of the week and just going okay. on from this point I completely agree I think when journalists of colour and journalists from marginalized identities aren't necessarily writing about race and identity it's up sometimes I'm not that we shouldn't be able to of course we should be able to of course you know that is is complete within our remit and our right to explore the facets of our identity but when we're kind I say allowed kind of inverted quotes quotes, because it seems that so often that's all editors want of us they want us to talk about our trauma but when we actually kind of break out of that and speak about other subjects and write about the subject I think is it is really refreshing and it is really really amazing to read but my article this week is by Naila Inayat for Vice. And it's about transgender women in Pakistan finally being allowed to go to church. And it was just a really beautiful article because we touched on faith and religion last week a little bit, or last episode a little bit. But it's just a, it was just about how these transgender women in Pakistan just couldn't find a place to worship. And religion and faith, just as... Core ideals shouldn't be, they, there shouldn't be gatekeepers around religion, right? And so these transgender Christian women finally being allowed to go to churches and actually find a place to worship in peace, finally, and being able to find a community in that, it was just a really, really beautiful thing. And there's one line in the article that says, After years, Sonia finally got to sing carols again after becoming a member of the chapter of the first transgender church in Pakistan. And something so simple as being able to sing a carol or a hymn or just being able to worship in a community is a really it's a really important thing for some people and it's a really core facet of people's identity so I just yeah I thought it was a really beautiful article and I really enjoyed reading it and I would highly recommend And I'll pass it on to Inuri. Inuri, I know that, I don't know if that's too much for us to ask of guests to pick an article of the week, but we've decided to ask you to pick an article. Yeah, no, not at
1: all. It's my pleasure. And also those sound, those both sound really beautiful. And um, I actually, I really, I really see your point on, on not sort of pigeonholing uh, writers of color to only write about race and racialization. Um, That's something I've felt quite strongly myself as well. Um, the piece that really moved me this week was uh, in the Washington Post. It's by uh, an author named Michelle uh, yee Um and it's uh, America Was Always Where She Felt She Belonged, which is a feature on uh, Sonsha Kim, who was one of the victims of the Atlanta um, shooting in March. Um, essentially, I think the thing that really moved me about it was just how profoundly intimate it was. Like they had... Um, you know, excerpts of voicemails that she'd left for her family that played along in the article. And there was this this anecdote about um, how, like just days before the shooting, she had purchased shoes for herself and her daughter um, so that when she, you know, visited her for Easter, they'd be able to go on walks together. Um, and like one of the last texts she sent to her family was, you know, a picture of the shoes and, you know, saying that like, oh, I bought this for you so that we can uh, spend time together, go on long walks over the Easter weekend. Um, and it was just so, it was very moving. It was obviously very sad. Um, and there was a sense that like, it really captured how immigrants to the U.S., can love a country so much that like, doesn't love them back. And I think that that's something that a lot of people struggle to understand, you know, this, this idea that you could love a place like the United States. Um, And I think that it did a really good job of respecting her interest in being an American citizen and being an American and embracing what those values were and what that meant. Um, And it didn't sort of, it didn't assume that America is a complete write-off because I think that that's one of the most dangerous things we can do is to presume that this sort of massive country, because of its problems, is a complete write-off. I think it had a lot of hope for the love that people can have for their country and how that can make the country better and how we need to sort of embrace that. So I think that it was really beautiful. It was. Um, I don't. I don't like patriotism very much, but it was a. It was a kind of. Uh, love for one's country that you know avoided all of the sort of regular tropes that we see about patriotism and nationalism and I just thought it was it was so beautiful it was really intimate and it was really um it was very genuine in its understanding of who she was um and I just thought it was incredible.
3: Amazing that sounds really great um we a few episodes ago we did talk about the Atlanta shooting um you know and just how obviously awful um it was that you know so much anti-Asian like hatred and racism is kind of like occurring um across the world and yeah that sounds like an amazing piece kind of like paying tribute to like her life and yeah how she wanted to be an American and you know how she felt like she belonged there which sounds beautiful thank you for sharing that um yeah. I think my article really like follows on quite well with that and um, which was um by, I believe, a new writer for Gal Dem. I think I saw her tweet that it was her first. Um she um her name is Rosie Sheed, I am going to say is the pronunciation. Um, and she wrote for Gal Dem um, uh, say, uh, an article about confronting anti-Asian racism as one of the first Chinese adoptees in the UK. So she was Chinese and adopted in the UK. Um to a presume, I think a white family and uh you know to kind of talks about her background and how you know she feels you know as, as uh Inori just said about um the victim of the Atlanta shooting she feels at home here she feels more connected to like British culture and you know to where she grew up you know and she has an Essex accent and all of this um you know in comparison to what people see of her which is that she is Chinese or Asian um, and you know I'm adopted myself um, and from and identify as Chinese so um, it was really great to read um, and I actually like spoke to her about it because I'm kind of actually looking into uh, transracial adoption at the moment and um, it was just a really great article um, and you know if it really was her first article is exceptionally well written and it's like really great way of towing the line between like personal essay and like you know unpacking more kind of wider issues of like anti-Asian racism and you know like growing up in a predominantly white area as a Chinese person Um, so yeah it was really great Um, and as always uh we will obviously tweet um and post all of these links so that you all can enjoy them as well um and yeah I mean if if also if anyone um actually reads these articles and you're like wow that was a great recommendation please let us know because um we'd like to hope that we are giving you good recommendations for articles and thank you Anore for bringing your own to the table today
1: yeah, of course thank I- you for
2: listening to me <laughs> I've actually I don't know if you watch This Is Us but like there's like our whole plot about adoption in this is us it's like one of the main points of the show um but especially recently some of the late episodes without giving any spoilers there's been loads of discussion about transracial adoption and it's like really really interesting and I hadn't known that much about it until I like watched the show um and yeah no it's been it's just like I feel like what is that there's a word for it when you somebody mentions something and then you hear it loads afterwards or like you start to notice it a lot like it's suddenly i don't know what i'm trying to explain but i've had been thinking a lot about transracial adoption in conclusion recently so i but i would recommend watching this is us to like it like shows a really personal aspect um like journey of transracial adoption in that show which is really fleshed out and interesting
1: so yeah yeah I mean not to sort of fangirl but I'm a really big fan of This Is Us I think it's an
0: excellent show. (laughs) I know we talk about journalism a lot on this podcast but this podcast is about creativity about diversity within creative industries so I think that is definitely a future episode and we'll talk about the importance of diversity in television and film because I think shows like This Is Us are really a testament to how needed they are and how necessary and how much so many more people can actually connect with these shows once there is a diver- more diverse cast
3: 100 um i have not watched this as us but i do like know of some of the storylines um and i know that like there is like um like there's this one scene that i remember watching spoiler alert which was like um the like black kid was adopted into the white family and then like the the white mom is like confronting the grandma about like racism um and about like treating the black son differently to like the biological white children and stuff like that so that's yeah really great um yeah adoption is like a really interesting topic um especially transracial adoption but anyway um shall we move on to the guest of the hour the guest of the day of the week of the podcast um uh so yeah I mean obviously you kind of talked a little bit about your like journalism qualifications and um, what you've done and do you want to just like tell us a bit more about yourself like your background like whatever you feel like it Um, yeah go for it sure
1: um so I am uh I guess I can start I, I never start off with this because it never feels relevant but I am from India I uh you know sort of grew up between India and Canada and then I did my undergrad uh in sociology and my master's in investigative journalism um, <clears throat> I think that, uh, you know, so I, I've talked about this with Michelle before, but like I've been interested in journalism since I was like 15, I started off at the high school newspaper and then campus newspaper and university um, and, you know, since then have written for like, uh, you know, more sort of Canadian news outlets like the Toronto Star and the CBC and then most recently have moved on to sort of long form writing on digital platforms like Unearthed uh, or The Local um, or print magazines like uh, this magazine in Canada. Um, So my work sort of predominantly is Investigative features that sort of tie together um, patterns like data patterns and individual experiences and anecdotes um, and I, you know, I write I write a, on a variety of subjects really just the things that have interesting data sets attached to them mostly but I've written on, um, you know, the climate crisis and environmental racism in the past, um, I uh, have a feature out next month that's about um, accessible housing. Um, I've done a lot of reporting for the local on public health and social justice. Um, So it's a a sort of broad scale of sort of social justice uh, topics that I'm interested in. And um, yeah, as I mentioned, I'm gonna be interning at the Investigative Journalism Bureau. um, So that involves sort of research and uh, reporting. Uh, Yeah, that's what I'm up to these days, uh, mostly freelancing with a little bit of uh, internships here and there.
0: But Thank you so much Inori for that introduction and we'll link your social media at the end anyway. But Inori is an absolutely fantastic journalist and you should definitely read her work. You can find her, I'll link it now anyway, but you can find her at Roy Inori on Twitter and we'll link it at the end as well. But Inori, what made you first want to get into social justice
1: journalism? Um, well, I think that um, in Canada, there are a lot of questions that aren't asked in the media. And I think that has to do with a variety of factors. I think that there's a problem with funding, uh, predominantly, a lot of sort of major outlets that were, you know, doing sort of more diverse work that had more diverse teams um, have had funding cuts over the last few years that have meant that most people of color have been let go from the staff also because they're sort of lower in seniority. Um, so there's a problem, first of all, of, of funding and where that money is coming from. And then on top of that, there's, there's this, there, I think there's a pretty big disparity between the kind of investigative work that happens at the major publications, like the Toronto Star, or the Globe, um, and the stuff that happens in smaller magazines, independent, like, small publications, uh, and new, you know, digital publications. And so I think that part of the reason I was so interested specifically in like investigative feature writing, um, and, uh, you know, more sort of, yeah, more, more sort of long form, uh, you know, critical work rather than shorter format work, um, is that I think there are a lot of avenues that haven't been explored a lot of topics that basically don't get touched. And there's a lot of sort of bits of data and bits of information floating around um, in the Canadian media landscape that have never been sort of explored in full. And so um, I am very enthusiastic about about information and about data. And um, as I'm sure we'll talk about later in the show, uh, the UK and Canada have very different Data landscapes and like in terms of accessibility, in terms of uh, transparency, and so yeah, I think there's the there's a need to sort of challenge the way that Canadian journalism works right now, um, <clears throat> and to uh, be more willing to be critical and to explore topics rather than just report on them. Um, and so that was why I was particularly interested in in developing that skill set. That's how I ended up doing the masters with you guys.
3: And have you found it like more, have you found it difficult in Canada to kind of, as you said, challenge those things and, you know, report more and analyze different kind of like aspects of um, social justice and race, um, you know, particularly within like um, Canadian media landscape and like you know the diversity of like people within Canada uh -hmm. do you think there are like gaps in like any kind of reporting or analysis of marginalized communities there
1: I think that um so I have to I have I feel like it's important to give the caveat but I feel like I've been very very lucky especially in the last three years in terms of uh the willingness that people have to invest in my work um so I have to say that like I think that Aside from the overarching sort of systemic issues and the way the industry is run, I personally actually feel like I've I've had it pretty easy, honestly, like I've had editors who are very willing to um, invest time and money in my work. I've had people offer me a lot of uh, opportunities, definitely not trying to brag. I'm just trying to say that like, I do recognize that I've been quite lucky and that I've had a lot of editors, some of whom are people of color, some of whom are white, um, who are very enthusiastic about working together. And so, I definitely think that there are so many people in the industry who are working really hard to give uh, marginalized people the opportunities that they deserve, uh, and that they should have been getting all this time. And I definitely don't think it's... I I wouldn't write off the industry as a whole. I think that there's a lot of really good stuff that's being done. Um, In terms of the places where gaps exist, I think that... um, I think that one of the things, one of the sort of major problems we see, and I'm gonna speak specifically to sort of long form investigative work because that's what uh, I'm you know, well versed in. Um, I think that one of the major problems that we see is a lot of publications cannot give you the amount of money that you actually need to be able to do long form investigative work, given the amount of time it takes, the length of the, of the writing, um, the amount of sort of in-depth reporting that goes into it. A lot of independent publications can't afford to do that. Um, and so, what ends up happening is that like you either do the work for very little money or you don't do the work. Right? And so, or you, or you happen to sort of get situated with some of the few people who can pay well. Uh, I'm very lucky that a lot of the stories that I've done uh, since I got back to Canada after my master's were with uh, the local magazine, um, which is an independent online uh, digital magazine that is specifically focused around issues in Toronto. And they are, uh, they're immensely respectful of, of my time and efforts and they pay me accordingly, but that's quite rare. Um, and it's not really the fault of the publication if they just don't have the money, right? Um, And so there's this thing of like, when there are such strong financial constraints, uh, as you know, we've talked about in the past in terms of, um, you know, working for free or working for very little money, uh, which I know is a very hot button topic in in the British uh, journalist scene. there's a sense that you leave a lot of people out of that process, right? You leave out people who are low income, who come from marginalized backgrounds, who can't really afford to do work for very little money. And so you either have people who are supplementing their incomes uh, by doing high-paying work and then doing low-paying projects after that, or you have people who just sort of give up and end up doing um, shorter form, less intensive stuff. So I think that's one of the major barriers that exists in terms of having better, more critical, more long form work that isn't at one of the major publications. Uh, And that obviously affects um, people of color more than it affects white folks because of uh, disproportionate poverty in uh, racialized communities in Canada. Um, And you see that, but sort of most uh, concentrated amongst uh, black and indigenous journalists because the obstacles that sort of stand in their way are far more than you'd see for sort of East or South Asian people. So as a South Asian person, I think that I've been relatively privileged in terms of the opportunities I've received. I know that it can be a lot worse when you are, you know, fighting against settler colonialism within a a reporting system that is inherently settler. Um, So yeah, I think that there's a lot of work to be done. But I also have been very lucky that I've known a lot of people who are doing that work.
2: I have a question, because in the UK, I've noticed that there's like quite a few like publications like Galdem, Black Ballad, Burnt Rotty Magazine that are like specifically um, there to platform people of colour and women of colour and their voices and like they pay for you to do um, investigation and opinion pieces and all that kind of thing. Um, But is there... they're quite well known, especially in journalist circles, like in the UK. But is there like something similar? Are there publications that are similar in Canada? And like, what is the vibe with that?
1: Yeah, I think that there are, uh, there are a lot of publications that specifically look to platform marginalized voices um, and, you know, make a concerted effort to talk about race, for example, or, um, you know, class. Um, And, you know, some of my favorite examples that I can talk about are, so I have to, I'm very biased, but I have to plug The Local because it is an excellent publication um, and because they sort of, they pay their writers uh, as they deserve to. Um, And so, yeah, The Local does sort of in-depth journalism around, uh, you know, places in Toronto uh, does like sort of hyper local, uh, very intimate portraits of different parts of the city. You know, it's one of the most diverse cities in the country. I would even argue, probably one of the most diverse cities in like North America or in the world. Um, and so, yeah. So I think the local does really good work in terms of that. They don't have a sort of specific, um, a specific niche that they. Uh, Address in terms of marginalization. They don't talk specifically about race or about class. They talk about sort of everything in conjunction. Um, I, that's what I've noticed with a lot of the independent publications that exist here is that they do a sort of—they're uh, not necessarily focused in on a particular group. They do, um, you know, social justice and and platforming marginalized folks. Uh, on a more broad spectrum. Uh, mm-hmm. Another example uh, who I have a piece coming out with next month is uh, this magazine, who is a fifty year old publication. They're a print magazine. They do um, you know, storytelling around, Uh, marginalized communities that sort of center those communities and focus on their voices rather than speaking for them. Um, In terms of, uh, you know, environmental reporting, I think the Narwhal does a really good job of talking about indigeneity and environmentalism and has done some incredible investigative work. I've always wanted to write for them and hoping that I will be able to in the next couple of years. Um, I also, I'm not super familiar with their work, but another massive, um, you know, sort of independent publication that centers social justice is Ricochet. Um, So there are these, you know, smaller, uh, you know, independently funded, um, diverse teams of people and publications that are, uh, that do exist. And I know there are more and more coming up. I've heard about a lot uh, only in the last sort of six months uh, that are, you know, taking on the mantle of writing specifically about people of color or specifically platforming people of color I know that there's um one that sort of specifically platforms like students Uh, so I think those niches do exist I think the primary issue that they face again is is an issue of funding Mm -hmm.
2: that's really interesting to know
3: thanks (laughs) do you think that like the journalism scene in Canada in comparison to the UK do you think there are like more diverse opportunities there do you think that there are more people of color within journalism in that, in the circles that you've run in, in the places that you've worked at. Obviously, I'm not saying you are, like have a crystal ball and can see <laughs> everything, but um, just from like kind of anecdotally and like from the people that you've interacted with, um, do you think there are like a large population of uh, people of color working in journalism um, in Canada in comparison to maybe other industries or other countries of journalism? Mm-hmm.
1: So it's actually, it's interesting because when I was looking for like what the right article would be to to share with you guys in the, in the opening segment of the show. Um, I was looking through sort of Canadian outlets and US outlets and I noticed that a lot more US outlets had pieces by people of color than Canadian outlets did. I don't think that there is necessarily a problem of Okay, so I think that it's a very nuanced question because with some groups, there definitely isn't enough representation. Like, I think in terms of Canadian media, there are not nearly enough Indigenous uh, journalists and there are not nearly enough um, Black journalists. Not because there aren't people who are interested in those fields, but it's because there are so many hurdles to, to actually being able to get into a, a newsroom, and freelancing is, is really difficult, um, especially in Canada because the sort of The breadth of publications that we have is is a lot smaller than places like the States and the UK. Um, And so there's definitely, you know, that that within those two groups specifically, there is a a pretty huge um, gap that needs to be filled. And I think that is continuing to be filled. Also, as I mentioned earlier, part of the problem that you have is with Canadian publications that do have a lot of people of colour on staff, uh, whenever there are funding cuts, they tend to hit them first, because they were hired most recently. Um, And so you'll find that like when there is a wave of cuts, which I know there has been a lot of in Canada, um, you'll see like a ton of like women of color lose their jobs. Uh, So that's part of the problem as well is that they're just the first on the chopping block. Um, But I think, The one of the key things that Canada and the UK have in common is that they both have this sense of exceptionalism, that, like they aren't racist in the same way that the US is and so they don't really need to worry. Um, And so you'll find a lot of that in terms of the way that they cover um, race reporting and that has changed a lot in the last Um, I'd say in the last like three years, there's been a pretty significant shift, even as far sort of as early as like 2017, oh no, 2018, 2018 when I worked at um, the Toronto Star uh, as a, as an intern one summer, I, um, you know, there were conversations going on in the newsroom about how to report on uh, policing or uh, religion or things of that nature that I think have shifted a lot since then because you can see that in the changes in the coverage um, and I think there are a lot of people pushing for that because of the uh, Black Lives Matter protests last spring. Um, so I do think that there's a lot of progress that's been made in a very short amount of time, but I think that one of the key areas that we are lacking is that a lot of times you will have uh, people of color on staff for other forms of marginalized identity on staff and there won't be, a, there, there sort of won't be as much of an authority given to them as there is to as to white editors and writers. And so that problem of being relatively low in the, in the food chain is one that people are still encountering. Um, and that I know also puts a lot of people off from doing internship work at, at sort of big newsrooms. I think that smaller publications are doing a lot better in terms of the diversity work, honestly. And I think that that's one of the, the greatest strengths that they have right now
3: that's something that we like I think come across a lot in the UK as well it's just like that there are a lot of like you know trainee schemes and graduate schemes and things like that to like that are specifically aimed at marginalized backgrounds um and like people of color are encouraged to apply and all of that kind of stuff um like for instance the Daily Mail's Stephen Lawrence um Mm -hmm. scholarship fellowship whatever it's called and um and that's all great but what happens is that then you have a lot of like people of color at the lower levels of like the hierarchy who aren't able to make decisions about what to cover and how to write something because that is like in the hands of editors who are mostly white who are overwhelmingly white and don't have that kind of concept of you know how to a treat a person of color as their like staff like their manager but also no concept of what is important to like marginalized communities of like in terms of coverage and without having people in the kind of upper echelons of journalism making important decisions about what to cover and what to write and how to present those things in the media that like there will never ever be like parity and diversity within journalism in my opinion, at least. Um, and I think that comes across a lot in the UK. I think it's kind of a general issue that we are, you know, just accepting of. And um, it seems that it happens, um, obviously, in other areas as well, and particularly in Canada, as you've just said, where, you know, you have people kind of in the lower lower rungs of it. And, you know, being the bottom person on the totem pole doesn't really give you a whole lot of power as a person of yeah. colour. Exactly.
0: exactly. <laughs> yeah, I think one one of the things you mentioned in and that was spot on is that, of course journalists of color and people from marginalized communities will face those more challenging socioeconomic hurdles and that's why you know people might ask oh why you know why can't people of color or people from marginalized communities get into journalism it's because we don't really have that thing to fall back on if it doesn't work whereas you know people it, journalism when you first start out especially, it doesn't pay exceptionally well. Okay. We we all know this and most people who go into journalism don't do it for the money. And if you are doing it for the money, you're probably not in the right industry because it doesn't <laughs> it doesn't pay amazingly as in comparison to say what say like my peers are doing at the moment. They're like working in finance, working in, you know, in law, whatever. But it's it it is such a it's such a challenge trying to enter the industry and when you know that you're you might be struggling to make money and you don't have anything to fall back on I think that's why people from marginalized communities do suffer the most when trying to enter the industry so just to touch on what you mentioned Inori about Black Lives Matter process last summer I think in the last year there have been quite a few number of issues that have come up race related issues that have come up and there's been an influx of endeavors to actually make journalism make creative fields more inclusive so the inclusion and of race reporters for example for a number of publications and making sure that there are kind of uh, diversity inclusion teams within certain industries and within certain workplaces and that's been very prevalent in the uk what has that landscape been like in canada
1: um well i think that yeah there have been some some very key uh opportunities developed in the last year i would say that i think a lot of them are also in part due to the pandemic and uh, the sort of revitalized need for local reporting. Um, So a few that sort of come to mind immediately are that the Toronto Star, which is the one of the biggest uh, daily newspapers in the country, um, I think they are sort of on par with another newspaper called the Globe and Mail, but they're, they're huge, right. And so the Toronto Star um, has developed uh, five entry level roles for uh, reporters of color. um, And they do those sort of as I believe as Okay, I don't don't quote me on this because I'm actually not sure Uh, they might either be summer long uh, roles or year long roles. I know that one of the people who started has continued for the whole year. So there's definitely the opportunity to remain on board for the whole year. Um, And so I think that's one of the sort of clear examples that we see where a major publication has taken on board the feedback that they've received and they have changed their policies accordingly. again, there's the problem of, of turnover, right? Of like what happens after that one year, but uh, you know, points are trying at least and we're in the early stages, so we'll see how things continue. Um, but then also just in terms of funding local journalism better, um, there's been uh, the local journalism initiative that's been funded, I believe by the federal government um, that has provided uh, a lot of different publications with the money to hire someone for at least a year um, to cover local issues relating to- the pandemic. And a lot of those people have been people of color or people who are sort of marginalized in other ways. Um, So I think that there are a few key ones. Um, I know that there is, uh, there is a lot more that happens through the journalism schools in the country, and I don't know too much about that since I didn't study journalism here. Uh, But I do know that universities are some of the sort of best starting off points in terms of um, getting those opportunities and and getting that foot in the door. Um, So yeah, I think that it's pretty clear that people have taken on board um, the, uh, the advice, the feedback that they've been given, it's just a matter of seeing how it'll play out in the long term.
3: I'd like to touch on freelancing a little bit because as we you said you're a freelancer um, and you know you've done internships and work placements as most of us have but yeah. uh, you haven't had a staff writer job and is that a conscious choice or was it because you, um, I know that you, I know you've done like internships and fellowships and things like mm-hmm. that where it technically was a staff position um, but on the whole you are a freelancer and mm-hmm. is that a conscious choice or did you kind of fall into it or Mainly I'm asking because I think I obviously there are so many white freelancers out there um, who talk about kind of freelancing as this like you know empowered choice where they're like oh um, I want to be able to dictate my own time and my own experiences and my own work which I think is a very valid thing but I think also for people of color um, there is a whole other section to that in that if you are a freelancer you are less subjected to racism and discrimination that happens a lot within newsrooms um, where you might have like kind of employment rights of like protection but you're still just sitting there waiting for a paycheck and having to deal with it and not say anything because as you said many of us are in the kind of lower echelons of the hierarchy Mm -hmm. and therefore we don't really have a leg to stand on and so freelancing can be kind of a a way of Escaping from that as a journalist of color and not having to deal with like the you know general racism within a media organization while still doing what you want and doing what you love, um, but you know in your own comforted kind of like protected safe space essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, and have you found that that is maybe a possible subconscious reason for you, or do you think that that you have fallen into freelancing but? There is a consideration that you could be a staff writer and have to experience that, and so being a freelancer is the best choice for you.
1: Well, I think that it's tricky because I think a lot of times there aren't really that many staff writer opportunities made available. Um, I think that because you know because of the sort of the tight funding that people have faced and the uh, the general lack of mobility within newsrooms. Um, I find that I think with a lot of the opportunities that I've seen, you're either there for a short contract or, um, you know, you're there and then you're in that same role for a very long time. Um, And so because there are so many people who are in those staff writer roles and who haven't sort of moved elsewhere within their publications, there aren't many new opportunities opportunities that open up. And a lot of the fellowships um, and internships that I've done haven't really made room for like there's no way to sort of continue past the end of the contract because um, for example like the the magazines that I've written for so the local this magazine um, I also had something of mine published in the Walrus, um, all of these places, I'm not 100% sure on the walrus, but I'm quite certain is that these places don't have staff writers, they just do freelancing. And so um, in that sense, I'd say there's a pretty rich sort of pool of opportunities for freelancers. I also, part of the, like, I absolutely agree with what you said about how basically when you are a staff writer, you are uh, subject to the whims of your editor and um, I've had some positive experiences, some negative experiences in terms of being in a traditional newsroom. Um, I was in a traditional newsroom only for uh four months uh, when I was at the Toronto Star and for like six weeks when I was doing one story for the CBC and that was very early on so I think that if I had the sort of expertise and experience that I have now I probably would have had a very different experience back then Um, but I found that you know I'm not a fan of having editorial decisions made for me by Uh, editors with whom I don't necessarily have a great rapport, Um, it's much easier to sort of talk over the angle of a piece or the sort of critical nature of a piece when you have this excellent sort of relationship with the editors that you're working with. And I've had that recently um, and been very lucky for it. But I think that, yes, there is the factor of, you know, freelancers get to make editorial decisions a lot more easily and they're treated as equals by uh, some editors, not by most, but or not by all of them, but by a lot of editors who are you know, trying their best to give freelancers the, the sort of less difficult path uh, in terms of advocating for their own work. Um, so I think that that is an advantage to the industry. I haven't yet seen an opportunity made available or like a, a job application open um, that is a staff position for a long period of time that actually meets the criteria of the kind of work I like to do. So I've seen like year long, like I was considered for a year long position at uh, the Canadian press, uh, which I was rejected from. I think it's important to talk about rejections as well as successes. Um, And so with that one, that was a year long process. And I think part of the reason that I was rejected was because um, they recognized that like the kind of work that I'm interested in doing is longer form, is longer term. Like these stories take weeks, not days. And I think that that's one of the key things. I think it's a lot, I wouldn't call it easy, but it's definitely easier to get a staff writing job if you're interested in doing shorter form news reporting, which obviously is the sort of heart and soul of of daily journalism. So I think it's very crucial, but it's not the kind of work I'd like to do. And I think every place that I've had the opportunity to take on a role that would have led to a staff position, Uh, both of us have realized that that's not necessarily the kind of work that I excel at the most or that I want to do. Um, And so that's definitely part of it. That's definitely part of the reason I I haven't ended up in a staff position yet. Uh, And I don't know if I will in the near future. Um, I think the kinds of roles that I would want to do and that I think in part we were trained for through the master's degree um, require a lot more seniority, require a lot more experience to get to a role where you can be like, okay, I am a staff investigative journalist. Uh, So I think that's going to be quite a ways away
2: for me. Um, Sort of moving on to coverage and how people of colour are portrayed in media in Canada compared to the UK. I noticed a lot in the UK, the UK has a very complicated relationship with racism and just how they understand it. Um, And there's like overt racism in the UK media, but there's also a lot of insidious racism that's sort of people who don't take the time to reflect don't necessarily think it is racism so with the most famous case Meghan Markle there was a disproportionate mm. amount of negative headlines about her and you know that plays into racism because on a subconscious level that's just how the the like tables turned on her um mm. and then like another example is say if they're if a newspaper is writing an article about rising crime they might have like black and brown men as the fi- pictures that are featured on the page and then that's like a subconscious link between crime and marginalized communities um and i that's so prevalent in uk media and very very little discussion has had about that and like how to tackle that and actually training journalists to properly report and reflect on why they're reporting something and what how they're reporting it and obviously you lived in the uk for a year so you would have like seen The kind of like headlines and reporting that happens here and just sort of what you see as the comparison in like Canada, what is the situation there with reporting and do you think there are differences and yeah what are your thoughts?
1: Uh, Well I think that there is one clear advantage that Canada has for the UK which is that we don't really have tabloids Uh, I definitely think that is, like, (laughs) uh, I definitely think that is something that has worked in our favor. Uh, We have sort of, like, tabloid-esque publications. They're small. Well, not, okay, they're not small. But when I say small, I mean that they don't have the level of influence and sort of mass readership that something like the Daily Mail has. Um, And also, they're not as extreme. Like, they can be pretty bad sometimes, but they're, uh, definitely not as bad as as places like uh, places have been in, in the UK. And so I think that that's sort of a, a starting point is like easily the best, uh, the best sort of facet of, of differences between uh, the UK and Canada. Um, I think that in terms of coverage, I think there used to be more explicit racism in the coverage before. I think that, you know, there was a there was a series of, of uh, a series of sort of confrontations that happened in in the industry between um, you know groups that are advocating for for greater equity in the way that we report and in the way we represent in newsrooms Um, and i think there was there was huge influence by you know um indigenous rights movements uh the black lives matter movement uh canada has a, a serious issue with policing as well for example um there's a lot of heavily racialized policing happening, uh, especially with, specifically within the Black and Indigenous communities. Um, And so there's been a serious improvement on the way that we report on subjects like that, um, on subjects like missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. Um, And so there are some you know big steps that have been made, and I think that's that's a definitely worth celebrating. Um, I think some the, we do still have serious problems in terms of the more sort of subtle, less explicit racism. Uh, I think that in terms of the way we choose to tell stories, the the sort of willingness, especially in places like so, the CBC, the Canadian Broadcast Corporation, is the is our equivalent of the BBC. It's a government funded, um, politically neutral. Uh, I air quotes, because this is a podcast, (laughs) publication uh, that does sort of broadcast, uh, print, radio, everything. And I found that particularly with their coverage, there has been a slight shift in the way that they do sort of both sides coverage. So this idea that like, you know, police should be receiving equal time um, as protesters uh, in coverage of these events. So I think that's changed a little bit, but it hasn't changed enough. It hasn't gone as far as it needs to, in my opinion. Um, But I'm also speaking as someone who, you know, doesn't have to act within the confines of like funding from government, which requires you to cater to all audiences. So I understand why they have to sort of exist within those restrictions, but I think there needs to be a a more frank discussion about the the value of that sort of work and and the impact that it's having on audiences. Um, I did notice some gaps in the reporting uh, last spring, for example, when they when there was uh, coverage of the Black Lives Matter protests and the way that different publications talked about um, protester violence, for example. I think that in um, print publications there is like there isn't as much of a divide between print and broadcast as there is in the UK. Uh, I know that there are like vastly different standards and expectations between the two um, on your side of the pond. So I think that, yeah, I think that there is, there's less polarization, there's less disparity, I feel in Canadian media, but that's because there's also less happening at the, there's less happening at the extreme. So there's there aren't as many publications who are sort of more staunchly left-wing. Um, now there are because there are more sort of independent publications forming, but main in terms of the mainstream, everyone's pretty much sort of close to center center, like the center, left center, right. Um, and I think that one of the things that, uh, I think Canada has been very afraid to have conversations about race in the past. Um, I know that the UK has as well, you know, there isn't the level of of discourse and, and complexity and nuance, uh, being put into these conversations as there is in, um, you know, in places like the US where there are just, there are more publications, there are more voices being heard. uh, And that also means there's more sort of right and left wing polarization. Um, So I think in terms of, you know, what Canada has done right and wrong, I think there are, you know, as I mentioned, there are a lot of steps in the right direction. There's a lot of, uh, you know, inter-newsroom conversation, inter-newsroom conversation, and people have learned a lot in the last year specifically. Um, but I think that until we have more people of color in staff, it's not, there's not really going to be as much of an improvement in the way we cover issues as we, as there needs to be. And specifically, you know, talking about, um, black and indigenous people, I think that is the, the starkest and biggest gap that we see.
3: Yeah, I completely agree. I don't know much about it, but I agree. We definitely need yeah. more people of color in staff jobs. Um, so that's just that's just the main that basically is the main tenant of this podcast I think yeah essentially. <laughs> um no
0: that was really illuminating commentary Nori thank you and it's really refreshing to hear that Canada doesn't really have tabloid press as much like god I think
3: that... imagine imagine that blissful existence
0: like an ideal world hardly hardly imagine the British media landscape without tabloid press to be honest <laughs> But I think speaking about specific, something that we touched on earlier and speaking about kind of a niche within journalism itself you know, is investigative journalism because investigative journalism is quite starkly different to news reporting, say other features of writing. Do you think there's enough diversity? I mean, there never really is enough diversity, but what does the investigative journalism landscape look like specifically within Canada, if you're
1: within your experience? Well, I think that... Um... I think that the investigative journalism scene in Canada is a little small, um, and it's a little sad, because there aren't enough people, there aren't enough opportunities, there isn't enough money. Um, I think it's a budding industry, like I think that like, for example, the Investigative Journalism Bureau um, out of the University of Toronto, that was only sort of formally created last year, so it's only been sort of around for a year. Um, but they're sort of doing some of that work, but again, they're tying it to major publications. So in order to get the funding, in order to get the time, you have to sort of be attached either to a large publication or to a small publication with good funding. So for example, with the local where I have been able to do a bunch of investigative projects, they have received uh, money through grants and through, um, I believe through the city as well. And so there isn't like that the constraints in terms of money don't come from subscriptions or advertising it comes specifically from nonprofit revenues um and so yeah i think that that really changes the game how you get your funding and i think that we're going to see more and more people doing that more and more people having sort of grants for in-depth investigations and reporting so i think that that's a changing landscape but for now I think one of the key issues that exists between, the differences that exist between the UK and Canada is also that um, the UK has an exceptional data transparency system. Like the ability to file an FOI and get information in the UK is incredible. In Canada it is absolutely miserable. It is, um, you know, you have to pay a very significant amount of money because you essentially have to pay for the amount of time it takes an information officer to put that information together. So uh, my partner was looking at, um, you know, different rates for different, um, you know, sort of government bodies. And he noted that in some of them, it was as high as like $60 an hour. um, And they were estimating, you know, work that could take between like,
3: you know, a dozen
1: hours and a hundred hours. And so it's absolutely unfeasible for someone who is not a uh, staff writer at a massive publication to be able to file FOIs and get that information a lot of the time. And so I think that's one of the key things standing in the way of of good investigative journalism in these countries. which is there's no transparency. There are very few data sets made publicly available in full sort of, um, you know, in full form that are, you know, have their full integrity that are not missing massive swaths of information. Uh, So we're working with a really limited pool and I think that's part of the reason that that the industry is not doing as well as it could be Um, and I think that that's a change that you know will take more than sort of uh, diversity in in authorship it's going to take like public policy changes in how we approach information transparency. Um, I think that in terms of the people who are doing investigative journalism I don't think there is enough diversity because first of all of course as you said there's never enough but also Honestly, you don't really see too many people of color who are doing sort of long-form, long-term investigative work. I think a lot of it is, is older, uh, whiter people. <laughs> and so uh, I think that's something that will change with time. I've also noted that like every editor I've spoken to at a like at a publication that works with freelancers has said like, we don't get enough reported pitches. We get a lot of opinion writing. We get a lot of like, like commentary or like sort of, um, human interest style features, but we don't get a lot of like in-depth reported work um, being pitched to us. And so I think that there's like, that's always, that's what I say whenever I talk to like young Canadian journalists, I'm always like, there's a niche, like there's a niche that needs to be filled. There are people looking for that sort of work who just aren't like uh, being able to commission it because there aren't enough uh, offers being made to them. So I think that it's a budding platform. And my hope is that more people will become involved in that sort of work as it becomes sort of front and center in how we cover things like COVID, things like racism, uh, and then hopefully post-pandemic, there'll be more of an interest in doing that sort of in-depth, number crunching, you know, sort of map analyzing, uh, data crunching work that, that I enjoy so much.
0: I think you've mentioned earlier that you said you're lucky to get commissioned and lucky to have these opportunities. I don't think it's luck. I think it's because you've worked hard and because <laughs> there's a specific need for all of this work as well, and you're filling that gap. is such a need for in-depth data-driven investigative journalism and it's because you're obviously the person to do that and you're doing it extremely well so i think yeah it's it's, obviously entering journalism entering the industry is partly in some situations due to luck and you know it's about connections who you know and where you went to school etc etc but sometimes it does boil down to hard work as well and if you're actually able to break through those obstacles break through those barriers and really get to the place that
1: you want to be then hopefully you can thrive Just like you are, Anori. That's very kind of you. I I think it is important to acknowledge. I'm sure there are lots of other people who are working hard who haven't just come across the right, like, you know, the right editors who are willing to invest. And so I think that I have, I think it's equal parts luck and hard work. How about that?
3: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, I think we should leave our discussion there for the day. Um, But we so what we usually do is kind of just like a main takeaway of like the discussion um it's a bit different obviously because we were like interviewing you but uh yeah just like you know general summing up our thoughts of uh the discussion that we've had today with you um you're welcome to have your own takeaway from what we have talked about uh but also equally you don't have to um but sava why don't you start is that okay
0: (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to pass on to Asya quickly because I need to think about my reflection for the day.
2: Okay well I'm gonna take the easy way out and say that my main takeaway was that we need more people of color in staff positions and um, also and kind of linked to that people of color who are able to actually rise through the ranks and like Mm -hmm. be given the support that they need within newsrooms and mentoring and like the system that they need to actually be able to rise through the ranks and make more powerful and important decisions because then that nurtures a lovely environment and i think that's a need for both canada uk probably newsrooms and most countries in the world um so yeah that is my main takeaway and the main links exactly to the main takeaway of this whole podcast so
3: well, based off that, Asia, how about all our listeners uh, bully Asia into doing the investigative journalism MA at Cities then we will all become people of colour investigative journalists <laughs> and then it will be great. No, I'm joking. Uh, mostly. A little bit. Just fine. <laughs> um, I mean, I can go with my main takeaway. I think my main takeaway is that we need money. <laughs> money, it makes the world go round, sadly. um, And, yeah, there needs to be more funding into various specifically investigative journalism like there need to be more staff roles for investigative reporters and journalists um not just like having a journalist that maybe once in a while will undertake investigative work because it takes a long time to do investigations like it takes ages um and yeah it's just like we we need more focus on those areas because investigative journalism is kind of where like impact and public change and policy does often come not always but often you know and for anyone who doesn't believe me watch spotlight like really that's all you need to do um because yeah it, it is very good um to have investigative journalists who hold people accountable who hold organizations and policy and whatever accountable and without you know for instance like data transparency in in canada and without people of color and people of marginalized communities within investigative journalists within investigative journalism that focuses on issues that might not be covered by a different investigative journalist that won't have a knowledge of that community or that issue then those things will always just like be swept under the carpet and we won't know about it uh so yeah more funding more money thank you goodbye
0: (laughs) i think related to that my takeaway now that i've had some time to think about it something that Inori said is that the pandemic as awful 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 as it's been has opened up a lot of opportunities for investigative and because we've realized that we really need to actually uncover a lot of like the surface level stuff that kind of gets in the way and figure out why these things are happening why these things have gone wrong and who and which organizations and which people in particular are actually the root cause of what's things going wrong so I think The pandemic has opened up a lot of opportunities for investigative journalism. And I think now is really a good and fruitful time to actually try and enter this niche and really take advantage of it while we can, because if there's an opportunity, you might as well take advantage of it.
1: Yeah, I I really agree with everything that you guys have said. And um, yeah, I think that, like, I think there's so much to to cover. So I know we've only probably scratched the surface. Um, If I had a takeaway, it would probably be that I will, I will do you a trade, UK. I will, we as as a country, we will take some of your tabloids if you also give us some of your data transparency <laughs> and then we'll all be happy. <laughs>
3: I feel like this on should be like of- international <laughs> peace talks right now. Yeah, you know? exactly. <laughs>
1: Just call
3: me the UN,
1: basically. is <laughs> <laughs> our birthday
0: podcast speaking on behalf of the British... An entire country. <laughs> yeah, we, will you, we will give you FOIs. Take our tabloids, take them <laughs> all. Thank yes.
1: you <laughs> we don't want them anymore exactly and I, I obviously have been permitted to speak on behalf of my entire country so uh, so yeah I, I, I look forward to the paperwork on this deal I'm just imagining you have Justin Trudeau on speed dial right now like, Justin, he's on uh, this call actually we're making
3: breakthroughs here he's still, like, hidden in the corner like behind your door over there like, <laughs> peeking out hello <laughs> exactly Okay, well, that was great. Thank you so much, Inori, for being our guest. Um, Our first guest, our first ever guest on the the Diversity Podcast, Um, but by no means our least or last because uh, Inori is an amazing journalist, as you've just heard, and we're very lucky to be in her presence um, and have her as a guest and also for her to be our friend, of course. Um, (laughs) And we will have many future guests um, lined up. We are planning our future episodes, so make sure you follow us on spotify uh where you can get updated new episodes or anchor if you don't have spotify um and we are at the diversity pod on twitter and the diversity podcast on instagram so follow us there as well um and yeah and inori where can we find you (laughs) (laughs) <laughs>
1: uh, so you can find me in my house for the rest of time, because we're in lockdown. <laughs> but I'm just kidding. We, you can find me on Twitter at uh, Roy Inori, R-O-Y-I-N-O-R-I. Um, I'm on no other social media platforms. so Don't <laughs> try <and> find me. <laughs> I don't I don't dare have a, a journalism Instagram like you do, Michelle. I just feel like I'm really bad at posting on there. Um, so, yeah, I'm on Twitter and it was such a pleasure to speak to you all. Um, I. I've really enjoyed this conversation. I'm excited to see all the great work that you guys continue to do. Thank you so much for having me on. Thank you. Uh,
3: Goodbye, everyone.
1: Bye. (laughs) Bye.